2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 1. Peter says this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. Just a simple message tonight entitled, The Day of the Lord Will Come. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for a good day today, time together as a church family. Um, Father, I thank you for the music uh, today and the preaching already that we've heard. And um, Lord, we stand in awe of you. Uh, Lord, we look forward to being with you one day. Lord, we know that you're coming back. Your word declares it. And I pray that you'd help us to just remember that once more tonight, to cement that in our hearts and minds, and, and to live, Lord, in remembrance of that moment that's coming. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Peter is beginning to wind down his letter here and to make his final impression on Christianity and on the people to whom he loved and really on eternity. And his tone thus far has been harsh. It's been aggressive. Aggressive. He's been combative in chapter 2, and as he gets to chapter 3, his tone softens. And, and right away we see him say this second epistle, and then he uses this word, beloved. Now, Peter's a pastor. He's a shepherd. Uh, he loves people, and it, and it bleeds through in all of his writing. Verse 8, he says again, but beloved. And so here he was attacking this false ideology, but now here he is writing to the people from his heart, and making sure that they know that he's loved. And he says, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. You know, these people knew what was right, and they knew what was true. And so do we. And our problem often isn't knowing what's good and right, it's remembering what's good and right. Because when we keep it in front of us and remember it, a lot of times it's easier to do. But we know a truth deep in our hearts, and sometimes when we get away from that truth and it's not constantly in front of us, we fail to do the truth that we know to do. It's one of the reasons why coming to church is important. Being around the preaching, the teaching of God's Word on a consistent basis, it keeps it in front of us. It keeps us remembering it. It keeps us so that we can stay on the track that God wants us to be on. It doesn't take long to go astray. 
uh, Brother John was telling me about one of the messages that was preached this week at teen camp on the prodigal son. And, and Dean Herring, who's preached for us here before, preached the message. And he was talking about how the prodigal son, it just took a moment for him, one moment to get away from the father. And it took a lifetime. It took a long, long time for him to get back to where he needed to be. And, and that's Peter's big concern here. That's what he's fighting for. Hey, don't go astray. Hey, stay where you're supposed to be. And I want you to remember the things you already know. Keep them in front of you. And all throughout his letter, Peter is addressing heretics, and his main concern is their incorrect theology. And we find that in verse 4 of this passage. And so if we were to take all of his concerns and reduce them to one simple phrase, it would be in verse 4. And here's his concern. These people to whom he's addressing were asking this question. Where is the promise of His coming? That was not a sincere question. In fact, questions like that were asked by evil men all throughout the Bible. In Malachi's day, the evil men asked something very similar. They said in chapter 2, verse 17, Where is the God of judgment? We don't have the benefit necessarily of tone because we're not listening to this word being presented to us. We have it written. So we have to frame it and, and contextualize what's being said. So I could say to you, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the God of judgment? Okay, that would be presented in a sincere way. Or I could say it like this, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the God of judgment? That's the tone. Okay, so the psalmist said, in Psalms 42, verse 3, the, the evil man said to him, where is thy God? In Jeremiah 17, 15, Jeremiah said, they say unto me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. These are all similar questions. It, they're Hebrew expressions. And this question, where is the coming of his promise, suggests that the thing being asked about doesn't exist these weren't people looking for a real answer. This was said in a scoffing tone. And that's why he labels them scoffers. Jesus isn't coming back. He said he would, but where is he? And their logic went like this. It's been, first of all, a long time since he said he would come back. He said he'd be back soon. Soon came and soon left. So he's not coming back. And if he were coming back, he would have already been here by now. And second, their logic goes like this, verse 4 again. For since the fathers fell asleep, things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The ancestors had all died. The world was going on precisely as it always had been. And the logic, therefore, is this. It will go on and continue as it always has been, and it will continue in that way. People live. People die, just like they've always done. The universe is basically stable. Things haven't changed, therefore they're not going to change. And Peter says, that's not true. Amen. Okay, sin overtook the world, and God judged it, and he says, by water. Verse 5 and 6, he judged it by a flood. He came in, he wiped the whole thing out. So what you're saying isn't true, because creation hasn't always gone on the way it is now. And he says, it happened once, and it's going to happen again. God promised it wouldn't be by water. But this time, it's going to be by fire. And that day is coming. They, what they were teaching was bad theology. And the problem with bad theology is bad theology leads to bad conduct. Bad theology leads to bad behavior. 
if you believe something and it's not true and it's not right, it's going to lead you to the wrong place. And that's what was happening. And all through chapter 2, that's what Peter was addressing. He was addressing all of the fruit from this theological root. They're lusting, they're extorting, they're envying, they're doing all these evil things. This is the way of Balaam. And he's saying, but all of that came from this. They are teaching a bad theology based on bad premise and based on bad logic. When your theology isn't accurate, it is always reflected in the way you think and the way you act. And by the way, when you have good theology, that too is reflected in the way you think and in the way you act. What you believe, it matters. What you teach, what you read, what you think, it all matters. And Peter wants his readers to be sure that he, they know that what these men is teaching, are teaching isn't true. And it's false. And so he works to set the record straight. And he says this, I want you to understand, Jesus Christ said he's coming back. And he is coming back. God is going to return. He came as a baby. Christy sang it a moment ago, sweet Jesus, <laughs> sweet baby Jesus. But he's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as king. He is coming back as Lord. He is coming back as God. And he is going to judge all of mankind. And verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord, Peter is emphasizing this, it will come. And what they're saying is not true. The, th the day of the Lord is a theme that runs consistently, not just through the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. And many of the New Testament writers borrowed phrases and expressions from Old Testament writers. They're tying the books together. And so what was written is still being written, and it will come to pass. The Jews saw time in terms of two ages. The first was the present age. It was wholly bad and beyond remedy, and it still is. <laughs> and moving to Mars won't fix that. I think it's a cool idea, right? But it's not going to fix anything. It is irredeemable, and it will be judged, and it's beyond remedy. And they believed in this, the second age, the age to come. And that's to be the golden age of God. Okay, the problem is this. How does one get from one age to the other? Because no amount of human intervention can make that happen. Here we have the present age. Here we have the age to come. How do we get there? We can't work our way there. We can't make it happen. The only way to get there is divine intervention. God himself. And the Bible calls this intervention from the present age, the age to come, the golden age of God, the day of the Lord. And it's a moment. And it's coming. What do we know about it? Well, the Old Testament prophets said it would come without warning. And so Peter echoes that thought. It's coming like a thief in the night. They said on that day the universe will be shaken to its foundations. It will be a time of judgment and obliteration of sinners. It will be a time of terror. Just another encouraging sermon from the pulpit of Eastland Baptist Church here, right? <laughs> um, I have a few verses I've asked the guys to throw up on the screen so that you can read along because I want to read a, a several of these, and I don't want you to lose track of them. Isaiah 13, 9. And so the Bible says this, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. This is what Isaiah said, Cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Joel chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. 
a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Zephaniah 1.15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, Isaiah 13.10, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place, and the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger, Jesus is coming back. And it's not a day to be super excited about if you're a sinner. And it's not a day to rejoice about. It's going to be cloud. It's going to be dark and it's going to be gloomy. and It's going to be terrible. And so Peter writes in verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which now he's echoing some of the Old Testament prophets. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are in shall be burned up. And he's not saying everybody's going to be burned up, but he is saying there's a day of judgment coming, both literally and figuratively. And what was the response of those who heard this message? What was the response of those who knew what the Old Testament prophets said? Listen to Paul. Listen to Peter. Listen to the other apostles. Well, verse 5, Peter says this, For this they are willingly ignorant of. Have you ever had a kid say to you, I didn't hear you? So the scenario goes like this. Come here, son. Because maybe, not in my house, but maybe the son is acting obnoxious, right? And needs correction. Come here, son. A moment goes by. Son doesn't come here. I am not using their names because they don't like me using their names from the pulpit. So I've stopped that, all right? So it's just son, if I had a son. <laughs> so I'll go over here, pretend like I have a son over here. Son, come here. No response. Okay, so what, is, what does a dad do? Well, the voice escalates, right? It gets a little louder. Hey, son, I said come here. Okay, no response. So what does dad do? Well, this dad gets up. <laughs> And it's a day of fierce wrath. <laughs> and the sun stops shining. And the moon fails to give her light. <laughs> and here comes daddy, right? And I say, son, I told you to come here. Why didn't you obey? Dad, I didn't hear you. <laughs> okay. Did the child not hear or did the child not listen? Okay. You, the son could have his answer, but dad's not happy. Failure to listen. Willingly ignorant is the idea. How many of you have been driving your car and you didn't want to know the speed limit? <laughs> because maybe if slight chance I get pulled over, I can say, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know the speed limit, right? We do this in life. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying these people know the truth, but they're willingly ignorant of it. I don't want to know the rules. I don't want to know the punishment. I don't really want to know what God says. Why? Because if I hear the truth 
And if I believe it, I may have to change and I really don't want to. I'd rather have bad theology so that I can do the kind of conduct that I want to do. And if you give me the right theology, it might lead to right actions. That's, that's just not appealing to me. That's not the kind of life I want to live. And Peter's making it clear, you can be ignorant but your ignorance changes nothing. God's coming back. And it doesn't matter what anyone else says. And it doesn't matter how you water that truth down. And it doesn't matter how you tweak it and logic it and explain it away. He's coming back. He's coming back. And he's not going to be happy. He's just coming back on his timetable and not yours. And you need to understand that. See, if you want to understand time, then view it from the perspective of the creator of time. And Peter says, they say he's not coming back soon. But he says, let's understand time from God's perspective. You know, and this isn't necessarily a literal equation. So don't read into the numbers here. It's a metaphor. He's saying a thousand years to the Lord are like, it's a picture, like a day to us. And a day to us is like a thousand years to God. In other words, he created time and he exists outside of it. Our brains can't get around that. But that's God, because he's God. And he says, soon to you is not soon to God. So when is he coming? Well, Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour, nor the Father which is in heaven. Peter said he's going to come like a thief in the night. The moment is coming, and the point is this, it's coming when you don't expect it to come. It's going to catch you off guard. It's going to shock you to your core. I remember one night, Elizabeth and I, our first year of marriage, we were living in some apartments in a, in a not-so-nice part of town. And so, you know, we get in bed one night, and we're in bed, and it gets late, and all of a sudden, in our front little room, in the, it was a one-bedroom apartment, but there's a little front room there, um, glass shatters. And so it's dark. And something inside of you, just the adrenaline pumps, and many of you would know, that feeling, and I instantly, just reactively pushed Elizabeth on the side of the bed. I grabbed my gun, you know, I, I'm on top of her, and I'm, I'm up, and to the guys that were in the security training yesterday, I was owning my space, right? And so I'm going in my room, and I'm waiting for the bad guy to come in, and he is going to die, right? And uh, nothing happens. So then I have to go on the aggressive after a while, and I get through the threshold, and I go into his space. And the bad guy was a giant frame full of glass that had crashed to the ground and splattered glass all over the ground. And it terrified us both. Our adrenaline's pumping. Didn't expect it. Wasn't ready for it. Thought it was something else. In, in, in a similar way, but on a much greater scale, there's going to be that moment. You could be in bed, work, something's going to happen. God says, it's time for me to enter into your experience. And he's coming back. And what we don't see today, one day we, along with everyone else, will see. And we will feel. And we will hear. And we will observe. And he'll be just as real to our physical senses as he is to the spiritual world that is more real than the world we live in today. God's coming back, and he's coming back on his time frame. Don't be duped by people who make predictions about when he's coming back. Jesus labored to make sure we understand that our lives shouldn't be altered one way or the other. We are to live in light of his return. He was coming back soon. He's still coming back soon. And Peter's message is this. When he shows up, it's going to be a time of terror. 
And it's coming when you least expect it. And you better be ready for it. And now Peter reveals to his, his readers the real reason for God's delay. And we find it in verse 9. And look there with me. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. The word slack means slow. As some men count slackness or, or, or slowness. But it's long-suffering to usward. And there it is. See, you're, you're accusing God of not being faithful. You're accusing God of not caring. You're accusing God of breaking His word. You're acting like Jesus was a liar. But the truth is this. He is long-suffering. And He goes on and He says, Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not asleep. God is not and does not get distracted. He is not disengaged. He is not not paying attention. He is not slack or slow as some people would count it. Let me ask you these questions tonight for our own benefit. Don't you think that God is ready for sin to stop? I'm ready for it to stop. I'm ready for my own sin to stop. For people that he loves to stop hurting and being hurt, ready to claim the victory, Based on my knowledge of the character of God, I would give an emphatic yes to all of those questions. But, in spite of sin, and in spite of the crimes of humanity, and in spite of our individual shortcomings and failings, God is long-suffering. He exercises restraint. He puts up with a lot of bad. Why? Why put up with all that? Because He loves people. And he knows what's at stake. And he knows eternity hangs in the balance for some. And he wants what is best even for the most wretched soul. The person you can't stand, God wants best and good for them. He is not willing, the Bible says, that any should perish. There's no parentheses there. There's no little asterisk and a footnote. Except for any. He doesn't want any to perish. And every day that passes is God giving men and women an opportunity to repent and to turn to Him. Every day that comes, it's a gift of His mercy. He is giving maximum opportunity for grace to work, for His love to break through the hearts of some people, for some people to turn from their lifestyle and their choices and their selfishness and turn to Him and love Him and choose Him over other things. Ezekiel 18.23 says, this is God speaking. He says, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? You think that pleases me? Saith the Lord God. And not that he should return from his ways and live. That's what he wants. He wants wicked people to turn. That's what he's waiting for. God wants as many people as possible to choose him over other things. And if these things were true... And Peter says, look, I'm just, I'm laying it out for you. They're wrong. This is what's true. And this is why it's true. Here's the reason why God hadn't come back. Because he's long suffering, he's patient, and he loves people. So he says this, then what should you be doing? What kind of person should you be? What's our role as we wait for his return? Because I've already accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm ready for him to come back. I wish it was today. I'm, I'm ready to go. 
but he's still waiting. So what are we supposed to do while he's waiting? Well, not teach false theology. No, no, we have a purpose, and God's got a plan for us, and we're part of it. See, people, the people in Peter's day had this fascination with the end times, and we all do. The sermons on Revelation so far today, you guys were pretty quiet and leaning in. We're fascinated by it. But some people can become so focused on the end, they lose sight of the present. And we need to know that what we need to know is that things will end. And God gives us just enough information for one purpose, to motivate us, to get us going, to motivate us toward, well, toward what end? Well, to do right, to reach other people. The only purpose of eschatology, the only purpose He gives us this knowledge is so that you would live a better life. See, there's a moral dynamic to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of this present age. The world is hastening. It is hastening to judgment. So the life we live, it really, really matters. And if you take eschatology and the tremendous truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ and you strip away all the pictures and the imagery, what you uncover is that your life is going somewhere. And the throne room of God that Pastor preached about this morning, it's real. And it'll be in the purview of our experiences of those that know Christ as Savior. And we need to live a life that's worthy of the inheritance that we will one day receive. And that's the point. Live worthy of the calling that we have. Every day is a gift of mercy. Every moment that God delays, it's for one purpose, that men would come to repentance. It's the only reason. It's not like he wants sin to continue. He's delaying for a reason, his return. It's an opportunity to develop ourselves, to render service, to take one step nearer to God. And if God gives you and I an opportunity to get right, it only makes sense that we would help provide opportunity for other people to get right. Okay. What if God came back before you got saved? How would you like that? What if He returned before you got an opportunity to be right with Him? Where does that put you? So if God is waiting for people to get right, then it must mean He just really, really values lost people. And we get to be, and we should be, part of that process. Because we are the vehicle through which God works. We are His instrumentation. Passing out a track that we ask you to do every single week, showing up for outreach once a month is good. It is not anywhere close to being enough. It is not even in the ballpark. We're talking about God here and eternity. We have a real and important work to do in this world. We have prayers we need to pray for each other, for the world, for the lost. We have good deeds that we need to do. We need to be challenging each other and encouraging each other to love and to good works. We need to show the next generation what a godly life looks like, even when things aren't going our way. How we hold our heads high and our disposition and spirit are good and right. As Peter says this, the day of the Lord is coming. We cannot escape 
from the entry of God into our experience and into our world. It's coming for us all, and He could return at any given moment. And we're not supposed to sit idly by and just wait for His to return. We're not, we're not just acting like nothing's going on, Lord, and I'm just, I'm just sitting here waiting. No, idleness is not part of the Christian ethic or character. Time is short and we have work to do, and every moment that He delays is a gift. We spend a lot of time, a lot of mental energy, a lot of resources, and a lot of effort to improve this life. That's not wrong or evil. But this life will be over in a moment. And are you giving adequate time preparing your heart and your mind and your being, your spirit, your attitude for the life to come? Like, like what kind of existence in eternity are you building? What kind of treasures are you laying up? Like this is real. And it's coming for each of us individually. And Peter asked this question. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what Isaiah and Joel and Micah and all these prophets said is going to come to pass. And what Jesus himself said, seeing that all of this is going to happen and this world we know is going to be dissolved. Well, then here's the question. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Look, this is a question that demands an answer. It's not a question we get to be willingly ignorant of like these people were. To not answer the question is to say, well, I choose to be ignorant. The idea of manner, when he says the manner of person, what, kind of, what manner of person ought you to be? The word manner means the idea, it has the idea of quality. So we could say it maybe this way, what quality of person ought you to be? We understand quality, right? Not all foods are equal. <clears throat> there's Aldi, and then there's Reesers. Okay, <laughs> so I'm very well acquainted with Aldi. All right, we understand the quality is not the same. We understand quality of air and pollution. Uh, um, we understand quality when it comes to our clothing, and, and we say things like quality of life, quality of cars. We're all concerned about quality stuff, and apparently, God is concerned about you being a quality Christian. So, what kind of quality are you? Not just in what you're doing, but who you are. The thoughts you're thinking. The motivations of your heart. The spirit inside of you. Peter says it all counts. It's all adding up. And we're going to give him an account one day. And the only reason that God's delaying is so that you can make a difference, that you can become a quality person, sharing the love of God and making a difference in this world. Look, eternity is, is, is it's bigger than Eastland Baptist Church. Uh, but this is, this is the place God's put us. So let's leverage the difference we can make here. Your job your school environment, your home. Make it quality through your Christian character, through your ethic, and through the difference that you make. The day of the Lord will come. And Peter says, beloved, don't forget it. Keep it in front of you and remember it. And change who you are.